Cool. Well, welcome, Marshall. Um, this was this is a show that's been a, a little bit in the making. I know we both rescheduled on each other's sides, probably me more than you, a few weeks from now. And um, uh, unlike most pull request shows, or for that matter, realignment shows, uh, there isn't like a timely topical hook necessarily. It's just you and me rapping about the either exciting or lamentable state of the world. And and with that, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It is Friday. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. Um, oh, that's right, because you you were raised Reformed Jewish, Marshall, if I'm not mistaken, not to just jump into the personal. No, that's, uh, that's a good way to put it. I'd say raised is really uh, – <laughs> I wouldn't say raised. I'd say present in the background. I'd say menorah in the – you know, uh, for, near the furniture in the dining room. But, yeah, that's definitely the background. You, you see my last name, Kozlov, and it makes a lot more sense. Right. When I when I first met you, it, it's it, you you definitely appeared as a, as a blip on my judar, as you call it. Um, and, you know, one of the positive results of going through the conversion process is that your judar gets more finely attuned. You get less less taken in with with false alarms, so to speak. Um, so but that's not what we're here to talk about, although we can't talk about that. We're here to talk about the state of the world, Marshall. Um, I think one topic that we both engaged uh, with recently is the topic of the network state uh Balaji, for those who aren't aware although if, if you listen to this show regularly i'm sure you've you've heard it because he was interviewed um i guess just a couple months ago now uh, was it yeah two months ago his book came out july 4th so it's easy to remember Balaji shirin boston's book the network state um which by the way it's 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 more than a conventional book it's actually this kind of beautiful and easy to read website um i forget the exact you were off the top of my head but just google network state in Balaji and you'll find it so you don't need to pay money for it you can actually engage with it. I, I understand he's actually dropped additional chapters on the website that aren't in the book. So it's actually the better version to, to read. And um, the idea there, just to summarize it for a second, is, I mean, there's, there's a lot in that book, and there's a lot of biology in that book. But the, the key parts of it is that we're converging to sort of a new politics in which you'd have these sort of federated, you know, crypto slash Hanseatic league of cities, or rather subparts of cities, in which politics won't be defined, you know, defined by a colored square on the map that's called the United States of America or Spain, but rather this sort of federated archipelago, you know, urban archipelago of, of network states. Um, and th that's the high level idea. Um, I'll stop there. You've probably got initial thoughts on it, Marshall. Yeah. And actually, this is the perfect topic for us to get into because because of the nature of biology thought and the way the book was actually published, it hasn't obviously made a splash in the East Coast policy political circles that I come from. And you're someone who is part of the tech sphere where it's got a lot of attention, but you also are aware of the policy world. So I think we'll be able to give a different spin to the overall idea. I want to start with, with this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because this was a failed interview question that I didn't do a good enough job of pushing biology on. Basically, the way that people should understand the network state is it's a response to a very pessimistic assessment of the world right now to the United States, to the geopolitical system, all those different bits. And the question I asked Balaji was, in the 1970s, you could easily say the U.S. has just lost the Vietnam War. 57,000, 58,000 people are dead. You obviously have the Soviet Union seemingly triumphant. Uh, as it goes through its post, um, you know, post-Stalinist period, you're going to have the invasion of Afghanistan, obviously, Shah of Iran, falls, stagflation, all these huge issues, not to mention Watergate, obviously. It'd be very easy to basically say some version of the U.S. is doomed as a project, yet that obviously didn't happen, and we were actually just five or six years away from, like, the Reagan resurgence. So I'm curious why Balaji doesn't think a lot of the very specific circumstances that he discusses in the book and just when he talks about these things and when he tweets, why he doesn't think these are just rehashes of short-termist problems that our system consistently has over a 200-year-plus history, and why that speaks to something deeper, a.k.a. the like actual collapse of a nation-state. So I'm curious how you think about that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, biology is definitely a perma-bear, right? Um uh, on the flip side, one of my favorite tweets is, uh, I forget who tweeted it, that like the, the scariest words in the, in the English language are, Balaji was right, <laughs> right? And so Balaji has been right about a few things, although certainly not everything. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's this sort of perma bear who thinks the American empire is falling like literally tomorrow, 
um, you know, the fact that Jackson, Mississippi doesn't have running water means that's it. It's, it's literally, you know, the Huns invading DC effectively. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I think Balaji is over indexing a lot of stuff. I, I tend to agree with the Balaji network state idea and the fact that the nation state is weakening because we kind of already live in a network state. Um, I, I did a review of his book and I sort of cited the example that, you know, Marshall, you and I probably hop between the same three and four neighborhoods in San Francisco and New York and Miami. If, if there was Balajistan, right, if like Balaji actually did have his own nation with like borders and passport control and the whole thing, would we even notice? Like, would we even realize that we've left it at any point? I mean, I, I would because I occasionally like go into Nevada or whatever. But by and large, a lot of people in our cohort wouldn't even notice. And so I, I tend to lend credence to the idea. Yeah, you know, even though I don't necessarily believe in the full ramifications of it, because we're kind of already there. And and I think to me, one of the biggest changes that's ever happened, and people who listen to me regularly have heard me say this before, um, like the biggest thing that's happened in the past 200 years is decoupling information flows from how matter moves around the world, right? The, the fact that, you know, historically, you know, the, the telegraph system was built literally alongside the railways across the United States of America. And if you look at a map even now of the fiber optic networks, they tend to follow the actual sea lanes. Um, and so you still see residues of, of information. And, and I still remember the days of getting letters, obviously, when back in the day, like a physical artifact is the fastest way you'd communicate. Um, but that's, that's obviously broken down, right? And, and the device that we're all staring into right the second, if you're listening to this on the phone, um, you know, has become this sort of mirror through which we refract reality. And I, I don't even know who my neighbors are in this building. And yet, I feel I've known you for years, even though we actually haven't physically shared the same space very often, right? And so that breakdown of, of the physical and, and the material and the virtual I, I, means that you create different, you know, you create different narrative realities and different epistemic bubbles to pick your metaphor. Right. And I, and I think what, what Balaji is arguing for, and it, it definitely is, if you want to get theological about it, a form of Gnosticism, i.e. you think the spiritual and the immaterial realm is more important than the physical and the carnal. And it's, it's this vast theological idea, right? I'm using it kind of loosely in the technological sphere, but the thought that it, we're escaping the physical for the sake of the virtual, right. Um, the, the natural politics that come out of that is, is this business that, well, the nation state, which is defined by this patch of land that you belong to by mere virtue of being born within its borders, that, that kind of goes away, right? And you kind of see it already. People are assortatively kind of opting out of the polities defined by the colored squares and the maps for something else. And I think what Balaji is saying is like, look, this is inevitable. And so whether you think China is going to take over the world or not, doesn't matter. This is, it is just, it is a fact that the nation state's getting a little bit rusty and dated as a political vehicle. Let's think about what comes next. So that, that's how I read policy. And this is where this gets really interesting. I wrote a couple things down that I'd love to hear you respond to. I'm going to always default to interviewer mode, but that's okay. So the nation state weakening, because I come from a foreign policy background, I just have like the total opposite take. Um, Post-COVID, Post-2020, international institutions, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the European Union, that's obviously going back to Brexit in 2015, have lost credibility and trust um, from subject populations in general. So the funny thing here is maybe there are internal parts of countries that have trust issues Maybe there's like dissolution or, you know, severe, all the sort of almost cliched talk about like a coming civil war talk happening. But like the actual nation state, like this construct of like a nation governing itself as opposed to like multilateral institutions, that's actually gotten stronger over the past few years. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, like the entire conversation about the war in Ukraine, like you and I are totally aligned on this, like despite, you know, the somewhat contrarian circles we, we roll in. The conversation with the Ukraine war isn't, how do we resolve this at the UN? It's not how does the, I forget what the post-Soviet um, multilateral institution that was set up. I think it's the CIS. So these were the former countries of the Soviet Union and then a couple other Eurasian powers. It's not how does the CIS and the EU work it out. It's how does the United States, the United States allies, Russia, it's operationally it's vassals, but let's just say it's allies and be generous. How do they work it out? And that's all of a nation state. Like the question here that we're thinking about Ukraine is how far do Ukrainians want to go in favor of reclaiming territory they see as their own? So I, I think that's just like my general pushback. I think when we say nation state, we're we're being a little inaccurate for what we're really describing. 
um, if we're really defining nation state as this post, you know, 30 years war settlement of how do we actually organize human beings um, in terms of various groupings. So I'm curious what you'd say to that. I mean, you're definitely correct that, that supernatural organizations have lost uh, their luster, right? Everything from Brexit to, to all the institutions that you just mentioned. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't it wasn't the um, the World Health Organization or the UN that saved us from COVID. It was Pfizer. <laughs> it, was, it was a corporation, effectively. Um, although, although you know, nation states had some handsome factor in health in, in incentivizing that. Um, yeah, I mean, the Ukraine thing is a good example, but. If you look at the history of Ukraine, which, of course, I didn't really know much about the region at all before I started taking an interest in it and spent a brief bit of time there. Um, y- you know, they're kind of like the last nationalist movement in Europe, right, in the sense that notions of the Ukrainian nation go back to the 19th century when a lot of national movements were going on, everything from Zionism to the Serbian nationalist movement, which in its own oblique way kicked off World War I um, with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like this weird last gasp of the 19th century nationalist movements that have finally come to fruition due to this bizarre set of historical contingencies. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely people on the right. I mean, I, I think of Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism, which effectively makes the case for nationalism, um, definitely against the notion of liberal supranational entities like the UN, but even against, you know, imperial imperial concepts like the Russian Empire, um, or, you know, or, or other imperial notions of, of belonging. And so, you know, is, is a nation state having its moment? Maybe. But again, one thing you have to think about the nation state, right? It's we think that these countries that just because a thing on a map called France or Spain has been around for centuries, that what they were has been around for centuries. But that's not quite true. Right. I often invoke Benedict Anderson as a book called Imagine Communities, which was sort of the first book about this, about how the you know post-printing press, you cited the Thirty Years' War, but like, yeah, that whole post-printing press, post-Enlightenment period, the notion that there should be a thing called Germany, right, that has the same language with a capital in one place and a sense of belonging that to a greater or lesser degree is a, is a virtue of civic nationhood rather than blood and soil, that was kind of an invented thing, right? And it was invented actually in the Americas, right? If you look at a map, for example, over the globe of birthright citizenship. Birthright citizenship, which Americans consider normal, is actually totally abnormal. <laughs> Almost no countries in the world actually have it. The only countries that do are actually, once again, countries, broadly speaking, in the Americas. The ones that you, we often don't think of the Latin American republics as having been sort of creedal nations, but they kind of were, right? And in the same way that the U.S. had to come up with a syncretic feeling of nationhood, you know, Peru, for example, had to syncretize different ethnicities into one notion of Peruvianness to a greater or lesser degree, of course. Um, you know, that that notion of a nation state, that's what I think is weakening, right? There's still going to be national power of some sort, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I, the other thing you have going on, by the way, is also that you, you touched on the issue of like civil war and this and that. Like the reality is that we're playing this war of images. Um, you know, it, we're in the society of spectacle in which everyone is basically LARPing. And so the thought that we're going to actually have real political turmoil, much less a civil war, I think is extraordinarily remote. I think there's going to be a lot of the online trappings of that sort of um, ferment, but I think very little of that's going to take place in the outside world. I think you're just going to see a level of of, of decay of, of sort of state action and state capacity, right? Um, like, again, once again, to cite the example of COVID, which country was actually able to have a vaccination drive that was lightning fast, which one actually had a coherent national healthcare plan with national data that looked at the efficacy of data of, of the vaccines? Well, a country like Israel, right? And a lot of the Western countries didn't actually manage to man, you know, manage the, the pandemic very well. And so again, I don't think it's, nothing's gonna topple and fall. Like humanity never really falls into states of total anarchy. You just get slightly decadent or decayed regimes, right? That are basically skin suits of what they used to be or what they claim to be, but somehow kind of shambled along like mummies uh, all the same. I'm curious. <laughs> you're, uh, I like the skin suit um, regimes bit. I'm going to steal that. But I'm curious how you think then, speaking of France, let's say, like how do you have any like theory or have you read any good theories of how nations regenerate or recover from that sort of status? So you could say, for example, the Third Republic. Um, right. In the 1930s, like that's the definition of a of a of a toddling regime living in past glory that is not up for the ultimate test. That test being the rise of Nazi Germany, obviously. But then you then see the you know post Vichy period, and then you have the Fourth Republic. But that that leads to the Fifth Republic. So there is some renewal there. 
how do you, how do you think about the idea of renewal? Because that's how I think of the United States. I think the United States is in this weird quasi fourth, fifth republic state. A lot of things are terrible in that, but part of what this process leads to this 10, 20 years of stagnation period is to that next version of the Republic. Now, that's probably going to be a, a terrible thing that leads to that, right? Like you get to, you know, you have a civil war, you have World War One and World War Two, you have the Great Depression, but I, that's how I would uh, apply the idea of revitalization to the U.S. But how do you think about that idea? Yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. Many U.S. historians have broken up, uh, as you just did, right? The actual history of the United States is not, in fact, one constitution um, since the Constitutional Convention, but in fact, you've seen you've had many Americas, right? And they draw the they draw the milestones at different points, whether it be FDR expanding the federal government or Lincoln in the context of the war. But there's really been more than one republic, even though it's nominally un- underneath the same piece of paper called the Constitution. Um, and I think you're also right to cite that, yeah, you know, may, many people look back and say, well, come on, what political turmoil, right? I, I mean. My, my parents told me stories of what it was like being college students in the 60s and 70s, or you can read about it directly. And the level of sort of low level political violence, bombing, assassinations, extremist movements was much, much, much higher than now. Right. We're in some sense, we've lived through a period of relative peace and plenty. Right. We've never seen like if you look at the number of bombings, for example, per day on average or per week in the 70s, it was like sky high, <laughs> it was like much higher than now. And yet somehow everyone kind of and of course, there was all sorts of other problems from high energy costs, a feeling of malaise, I mean, polyester clothing, I mean, that just complete blights to humanity. Um, and yet, um, somehow the United States powered through it. And then the whole Ronald Reagan boom time came after that. So, you know, the US is very good at reinventing. And you go further back to the 19th century, of course, you have, you know, the same, the same list of catastrophes over and over and over again. So yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. How, how do societies manage to do it? I don't know. I mean, it, but that, that said, there are other indications that this is a unique period in time. Again, I hate to sound like some bizarre sort of like one of these people who's obsessed with genetics or something. But, you know, the birth rate does seem shockingly low. <laughs> right. And demographic tailspins are hard to pull out of. Right. And you look at the birth rates in some European countries and they seem deeply low. And it, I think it reflects a lot of things. Nothing is monocausal in this world. But, you know, if we were studying humanity as like a species of wild fish or something, and suddenly their birth rates were plunging, we'd, we'd ask, well, I don't know, something is wrong here, right? Something is clearly wrong in the way that these fish are living. Why, why, are they, why do they seem to be dying out? And so I, I would ask the same about, um, about humanity. I think it's also like the felt experience of, I don't know, I, I don't know how much of this is me having a midlife crisis, but it does seem as if we feel less unified. There's, less, there's a lot less optimism. I don't know. Maybe it's just the lack of an external enemy. Again, going back to Israel, like what's the one thing that, that, that distinguishes Israel from all other Western nations? It's in a state of sort of existential conflict, uh, which requires a conscript army basically 24-7. And um, I was just looking at birth rates recently. Again, I, I, don't, I don't want to sound like one of these freaks who obsesses over <laughs> demographic genetics. If you have was, to apologize twice, you are a freak. I'm well, sorry. OK, well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, this is. Um, but it's like it's the only Western country who's had an increasing birth rate, right? Literally the only one. Um, in the past, whatever, X number of decades. Um, and so there has to be something unique about that country that somehow it, it does that. Um, I don't know. But mind you, it's not just the West. Like everything that modernity touches, even in, in more traditional societies like, or developing countries like the Middle East, you see, you see birth rates crashing. So there's something about modernity that does it. Um, but I'll stop there before I, I cancel myself. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, so I'm actually the reason why I'm talking about France is I'm actually reading the Collapse of the Third Republic um, by William Shirer. So oh! he also wrote the. Yeah, so he yeah. wrote the. Uh, it's like outdated now, but he wrote the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich book, uh, and basically France actually during the Third Republic actually had a very serious um, birth rate um, decline issue, and to take a quick tangent to take this to your biology is right conversation <laughs> opener. The, here's my here's my rubric for thinking through like biology and tech um, prognosticators, like where their sweet spot for being right is. There are topics that are icky. And because they're icky, folks kind of, folks who could compute them properly and do something with them just can't do something with it. So that's why biology is quote unquote right about COVID because circa January, 2020, COVID felt very conspiracy theory. What's this talk about lab leaks? Oh, is this just racist? No handshakes. That's crazy. COVID was the definition of the type of thing 
where Bawaji's peers at, let's say, the New York Times or in other sort of quote-unquote establishment spaces where they would just not be really ready to compute it. Um, birth rates are is the definition of another issue that feels icky, feels weird. So that's why you're having to apologize for something that just at a very baseline level just makes total sense um, as like a serious issue. Um, you know, Elon Musk, you know, whenever he tweets about birth rates and like population decline, you just see the, you know, ratio to end all ratios. I mean, Elon's used to that, but that's still like what happens there. Um, but I think that when folks are thinking through like biologyist thought, like thinking of how like contrarian thought could be really useful, it's really in places where folks who would think differently just have a various ideological or tribal revulsion to a topic. Um, so that's the quick note there. Um, I think another thing I'd like to talk about for a second, another question I'd like to ask you is just, I'd love to hear your reaction to living in Nevada, given the, let's say, like the coming civil war conversation. Um, I've done a couple of podcast episodes on this topic. It's a frustrating topic because there's a super lowbrow version of this. It tends to like go out on right-wing Twitter. It's usually talking about we need a national divorce, images of LGBTQ people, you know, drag queen story hour, all those different bits, like, like the lowbrow version. But there's also this like very highbrow version. You know, we have these scholars like Barbara Walter, for example, uh, at UC, um, I believe UC Santa Barbara, who studied this. And there are all these metrics that we can look at that indicate the U.S. is in the middle of a civil war. And I just can't keep help concluding that the second you leave these three or four coastal neighborhoods, you know, I'm recording this from Austin. I moved there from New York, so I 100% get where you're coming from. And it's funny, I read the I read your review of Baoji's book, and you referenced Austin as one of those other cities that one could find oneself in. So I qualify for that. But the second you leave just these very, like, mainstream places, even in red parts of the country, that just isn't the conversation. And it's just not that the, the, the political bits that are at the top of everyone's mind in these blue places just aren't or even urban places just aren't the top of things. So that's why I just don't, I just don't fear the civil war bit. I'm curious how you think about this coming to Nevada. Yeah. I mean, look, the civil war isn't happening because we're all too fat and happy to actually like <laughs> run a mile with an AR-15 with a 40 pound pack on our back and start shooting at other Americans. Like I just don't see Americans doing that. Um, it's just, it's, I, I think you, you just reach a certain level of either democracy or material prosperity, which that that's not the way out, and I, I think it's very di- it would be very difficult to convince Americans to do that. So I, I don't again if, by civil war you mean anything remotely resembling previous civil wars or well, or, well, quick, well quick interesting and this is how the civil war scholars tend to sort of this is empirically true but it's also kind of like annoying. The standard for a civil war is a thousand deaths. Right. Um. So you could actually. So so what they will say is. Look, we're not claiming we're going to turn in the red into the the blue and the gray here. There's not going to be Antietam to Bull Run three. It's going to be a thousand deaths, a mass shooting here, a bombing there. I mean, you know, think of the weather underground yeah. in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, it's easy to see a situation where that could escalate to that thousand number. Um, we're really like, reaching that point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a better example might be. Uh, things like the the Basque conflict in northern Spain or the, or the Irish conflict and the Troubles, right? In which you do have a an, an armed wing that, in a very willful right way, serves as the armed wing of like a of a mainstream political movement, right? And um, I lived a little bit through the tail end of that in the '90s. I studied in northern Spain towards the end of the the ETA period. ETA was like the the Basque IRA, sort of the terrorist arm of the of the political. Uh, movement that wanted Basque independence. And yeah, you'd have kidnappings, you'd have shootings. I saw a firebombing of like a city hall happen right in front of me. And um, yeah, there's a general feeling of like besiegedness, right? Like you, there, there'd be troops on patrol occasionally and stuff. Um, and I guess you could have that in the United States, right? And that that would probably rack up the, the body count necessarily to satisfy the, the criterion that you just said. Um, I don't know. I, I, I do think there's something to the fact that there's differing moral foundations, I think, to red and blue America. And Again, I hate to use those polls because nothing is really binary in society. Everything's a spectrum, but just as a way to sort of roughly refer to it. I do think they are different, right? Um, like I said, I officially live in, in northern Nevada, which is kind of a purplish state. You know, obviously parts like Reno. 
I think strictly speaking are blue, but you go just outside of it where I am in the desert and it's as red as, as you can possibly imagine. Um, and there's no blue at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously Twitter isn't real life in a way because Twitter is the elite conversation, which is not what you see on the ground. Um, yeah. Um, it, it's, it, it is different though. I, I think it is a different moral foundation to how people think about the world. I, I, I think blue straighters, you're, you're correct that the Colster redoubts, I mean, to be a little bit blunt, people really have kind of their heads stuck up their ass and that, that really is the filters through which they view the entire United States. And they don't know, they don't understand the flyover. I mean, Forget the flyover. They don't understand Stockton, California, which is like, you know, 40, 50 miles east of here or whatever. Um, or, well, a bit more. But um, so. Um, well, let's, let's talk about this for a second because, you know, you did the. And look, I agree with the let's dunk on PMCs in Brooklyn bit, right? right. I, I lived that life. I felt it. Uh, <laughs> I'm honest about that. But I, I do think, you know, to get not quite like edgy, but. Something I've been fascinated by, because you and I like speak a lot about, um, you know, the new right and those, those different bits. I right. think there's also like a key take to be made that I don't think I think in many ways. And I guess this is different than actual people in red states, but I'm interested in ways that people who sort of supposedly are speaking for or frame themselves as speaking for red states, how they don't understand broader parts of the country, too. And you're kind of seeing that through like the abortion issue right now, um, you know. I'm sure you're a part of plenty of you know different group chats. I'm a part of plenty of group chats, and one of the key to- um, points in you know one of the more right wing group chats I'm a part of is you had all these conservative guys like talking about how um, Dobbs and the overturning of Roe v. Wade just like wasn't going to be a big deal, and all these different bits, and how like this was really just you know post 2016 Hillary Clinton era gnashing of teeth. And the country's really just going to move on. And just kind of from the start, and I think that's largely because of the fact that I was in a, I was in a fraternity um, in college. I'm not saying that in a douchey way, but more in the sense of like being in a fraternity in the 2010s is interesting because you're in, this is in Eugene, Oregon, University of Oregon. So you're in a hyper blue space, but you're in this like institution that operationally is right wing or is becoming right wing just as the culture changes, um, just as a construct. So knowing plenty of like center right to conservative dudes um, from college who were going to like a good, but not like incredible state school. I was like, Oh yeah, no, like they definitely care about the abortion issue. Uh, so I think that was just like a really, this is like this, this whole issue of like candidates, like Blake masters having to kind of like reverse their positions or dial it back is just an example of how people who are basically, I guess the real point is that people who are elites in general have this real danger when they're trying to do more than they actually can do and claim to understand people in the country right now. Because I think that's like the biggest gap. Yeah, well, so you mentioned New York Right, which I think is an interesting movement. And I'll actually be going to NatCom 3 in, in Miami in September. Um, I got an invite from Yoram, which was very nice of him. And I'll be going as like a journalist, to be clear, writing for Tablet. Um, but yeah, the New York Right movement is interesting because it, it, for those who don't know what I'm kind of talking about, and it... It's, it's hard to get your head around it because it, it, there's there's often not a lot of there there or, or there is there there, but it's not necessarily cohesive. But what the new right means, as I understand it, is that it's kind of a break with what they would call fusionism, which is this merging of like sort of social conservatism, but kind of libertarian in orientation a little bit in the sense that they want small government, low taxes, pro business. Right. And the new right. And I think. I think the left, which in general doesn't understand the right at all, but in this, it doesn't really doesn't get the new right at all. Doesn't understand that it's like, oh wait, but isn't the GOP the Sparty of like freedom and small government? It's like no, in in, <laughs> in the new right, that's not true. The new right is actually very comfortable with using state action to pursue its own moral prerogatives, right? Which is what you see DeSantis doing in Florida, for example, or the various campaigns organized by uh, Rufo, right? Um, against you know what's going on in the schools right and which is like wait but i thought i thought the gop was a party free or the right was a party free i was like no 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 they're they're very comfortable using the state um i so that's just like a my view of a broad definition of the new right it, it does include the new right broadly a lot of people of a religious bent which is i i find to be interesting obviously i think religion is interesting i think purely sexual secular sorry liberalism um is 
probably impossible, unsustainable long-term. And I've written about this in the past. I, I do think, I think maybe you're putting your finger on it politely because we probably know some of the same people who are in the new writing. We don't want to, we don't want to piss them off or have them revoke our, our knack on tickets or whatever. I do think a lot of them are basically LARPing, right? <laughs> and in much the same way that a lot of the left was kind of opposed rather than an actual political position, I think a lot of, a lot of the new right is basically opposed. And what, what I mean by that is that, what do I mean by that? I mean that they embrace thoughts or ideologies or even movements overseas that they don't, aren't actually willing to live in and don't actually take seriously, right? So like when I went to Berkeley, you'd meet the classic like, weird hippie who was getting their fancy coffee and cheese at the cheese board and probably lived in a million dollar house in the Berkeley Hills who go on and on about Cuban healthcare. And it's like, buddy, if you think Cuban communism is so great, you know, you can get on a plane and go to Havana right there. Right. And the same thing with the new right, some of whom, frankly, have been supportive of, say, Putin in the past. And it's like, well, are you are you tweeting from Minsk or are you tweeting from the Upper East Side of New York? Huh? Where, where, where are you really sitting? Right. And again, it's it's this bizarre it's this bizarre horseshoe. Not that I think actually the old left and the new right have any political solidarity whatsoever. I think it's just the voice of people who are not really in a position of political power, but are toying with weird ideas and assuming a certain pose to them. And so I think if you, if you look at, but that said, the new right is not a totally toothless movement. They're like, you, you cited some of the people who I think would identify with that, or at least show up to the NatCon conference when they get the invite. People like JD Vance or Blake Masters, who I think are very interesting candidates. I've, um, interviewed Blake Masters for this podcast, and I, I have an on-the-record interview with J.D. Vance for my as-yet-unpublished piece about the Netcons, and I've talked to both of them. I, I think they're very interesting people. I think they're worth paying attention to, but you're right to cite that Blake Masters, for those who didn't follow the thing, I forget the exact sequence of events, so forgive me if I get it wrong, but basically, he had a very pro-life position on his website, and he basically backed off of it. Is that a correct summary of, of what happened, Marshall? Yeah, his campaign as of June 2022 had language saying he supported a personhood amendment, which effectively would just mean that it basically means the second that a baby, a woman becomes pregnant, this is super oversimplifying it. Um, the baby would be a, a, a person, therefore abortion would just not work. Basically, it, it's a blanket way to make abortion illegal. Right. Um, obviously, when you have Kansas, you know, red Kansas, um, basically solidifying a moderate pro-choice stance after Dobbs via um, a referendum. Um, you have a bunch of different congressional races playing out this way. I think it's very clear that many more Americans were comfortable with the Roe v. Wade status quo than people really thought in the polls. And right. what Blake has done now is Blake has pivoted his position to, I would favor a 15-week abortion ban right so no abortions after 15 weeks and it's the democrats who are extremist because my opponent mark kelly would allow abortion up until nine months which okay. once again like you could argue that that's a you know like that's a but as i've talked about with people like that is not you could be a you could be a blue dog democrat in arkansas and articulate that um right. that is nowhere near as aggressively pro-life as he once was and there's kind of like a mini a, a mini controversy with this. i want to i want to say one quick thing um in response to your thing about the new right LARPing, because there's a lot of nuance here, and I want to be, I'm both sympathetic and unsympathetic. So here's where I'm sympathetic. The new right is a really interesting and I think smart intellectual response to a problem. The problem being that the fusionist concept, right? So this is to your point, like dating from the 1950s. This is really of Buckley and National Review. This is really like Goldwater versus Reagan. That's one model of this. Another way of articulating this is there's the three stools of the Republican Party's most conservative movement. There are the foreign policy hawks. There's the economic libertarians and there's the social conservatives. Both of those frameworks basically were not working from the perspective of like winning a dominating political majority in the United States. Say what you want about FDR and neoliberalism. Like that was a political philosophical project that was able to fundamentally remake America over the course of three decades and actually just dominate the political scene after that, right? You see the Democrats holding Congress um, for over 40 years in terms of the House. So that was a successful political project. The new right very accurately articulates that fusionist Reaganite three stool conservatism post 1980s 
is not able to similarly transform American politics. What it was able to do is launch the war in Iraq. It was able to pass a bunch of tax cuts, but it's not able to overturn Obamacare. It's not able to even reform Social Security. It's not able to remake the American Republic, going a little back to our earlier point. So if FDR creates a new republic, fusionist conservatism did not do it. At best, to use new right phrasing, it's basically liberalism. Okay, that's a little unfair because I think that's inaccurate. It's basically just too moderate. Um, in its aims and in its vision, all those all those different bits. So the new right, I think, is offering. I think they are offering a legitimate, like polit, like philosophical response to that point. I think where it turns into LARPing is they take the serious intellectual work that's being done here. Right, no one here is someone I would describe as a grifter. There's no one here I would describe as someone who's dumb. Like frankly, like because the realignment's about transforming political ideologies. I've spent a lot of time with leftists and with new right people. I would say that no offense to any previous people I've spoken to, people on the new right tend to be a little brighter and deeply thought than people on the left. Um, and once again, like I think that's largely because, to your point, there's this 50, 60 year history going back to Berkeley and the 60s that it's very easy to kind of LARP your way into because the new right's a little newer. At this stage of the game, people are still doing their best, right? Like compare a, compare a 1960s liberal um, leftist doing the Port Huron statement. Um, you know, with SDS compared to like a, you know, post-Cold War retread of the 1990s, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. It's where, so to my point then, when they're transitioning from this intellectual response to a problem, when it gets political, like that's when it gets silly. Um, and that's when you see people tweeting, it's time for the conservative movement to fight. We need, I'm not going to name tweets because it will get, it'll get personal like way too quickly, but <laughs> as, soon as, it, as soon as it gets, as soon as it gets operational. It gets deeply silly, and what they're also unable to – and look, once again, like the, the, the new left ran into this problem. Like Ultimately speaking, there just wasn't an actual constituency for the new left. Now, there were aspects of the new left platform that were adopted. So if you're the new left, you're arguing that America has a generational problem. So the Democratic Party post-1968, um, the new left doesn't get Eugene McCarthy as the candidate. Um, um, Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's vice president – becomes the candidate. The new left isn't happy about that, but as part of McGovern's takeover of the Democratic Party, you see um, both like the, the voting age decreased, but you also see um, specific parts of the Democratic Party's platform that enable more youth representation at, let's say, the delegates, back when that mattered far more when there still was something resembling a smoke-filled room. And the new right is basically going by the same bit. Um, Another, I'm kind of going along here, but this is like kind of my favorite subject. Like it's, it's very interesting. Like J.D. Vance, when he was running for Senate during the primary, he started off talking about how he was going to raise taxes on wealthy upper middle class liberals who hate the right. Um, that didn't go anywhere. Um, that's because at the end of the day, it's true. Obviously, there's a culture war. The let's say working class to middle class to like non-college educated, like right who he, who he sees as his base doesn't like the, you know, hedge fund manager or let's be even more honest, like the partner at like a Cincinnati law firm. They don't like them, but they're not going to get out of bed to vote um, in favor of actually like raising their taxes. So JD dropped that. What actually stuck though is, hey, like Ron DeSantis, let's use the state to push back on the cultural left in a way that we would have been comfortable in the past, because in the past, what you would have seen happen is, you know what, like, we're going to win the battle of ideas. Like, I don't know, I don't know where you were in the 2000s, but do you ever remember those, like, we're launching a new, like, Hollywood, it's right wing, and it's going to win the culture against the left. Like, the Daily Wire kind of does that, but that's kind of like more of a, like, you know, cash grab. Like, no one really thinks that, you know, Gina Carano from The Mandalorian is going to, like, beat Hollywood or anything like that. But I think that's the part that's going to stick here. Just, like, the fighting on cultural issues, it's less going to be, like, the right is now comfortable using huge stimulus packages to, like, revitalize the American state or have industrial policy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you said a lot there, Marshall. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. so let I me hate, react to I, that. I hate when people do I, that, so that's, that's my bad. <laughs> well, no, well, but you touched on some interesting points. And yeah, to be clear, again, I, I don't think the new right is like a total LARP. What I, what I refer to the LARP-like aspects is kind of part of what you put your finger on, in which somebody like 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 Masters, who, again, I, I think is an interesting candidate, and I, I enjoy talking to him, you know, adopts 
adopts the ideological pose and then realizes, oh, shit, it's actually a losing strategy. Because here's the cold, hard reality. Whatever side of the abortion debate you're on, the views of most Americans around abortion are very similar to those in Europe. Right. And I've, I've cited a tweet that that contrasted this. But in Europe, public policy kind of converges to popular view because arguably their democracies are a little bit better when it comes to a lot of these issues. And in the U.S., it actually polarizes in which red goes to one extreme, blue goes to the other. And most Americans are actually like, well, no, I don't like late term abortions. But I think in the first X weeks where X is some number smaller than 15, I think it's OK. And that and that actually is the winning view. <laughs> right. Or I mean, to cite another example, J.D. Vance right, was on record saying very harsh words about, oh, I don't give a shit about Ukraine. And actually, it turns out most Americans, the right included, felt the U.S. actually should impose sanctions on Russia, right? And so it's, it's hard to be a populist if your views aren't very popular, right? And I think both, both Blake Masters and J.D. Vance got the memo on when they kind of went the wrong way on, on their views. And I think that's, that's what you have to distinguish a little bit with the new right. There are a lot of people in that movement um, you know, those who want to reinstitute blue laws to make beer harder to sell on Sundays, right? It's like, really? Is that is that what you think the right's path to power is? That, that making making beer hard to hard to buy on Super Bowl Sunday? Best of luck with that, man. <laughs> right? And th- there is no constituency for any of that, and and that that is an ideological arp. Um, but again, I, I think, to my mind, what's interesting about the new right, the way I frame it, right, is that when you leave aside the sort of Catholicism and the tradism and all that crap. It, it really is, in my opinion, the, the, the political struggle we've seen right now in the U.S. is kind of like upper middle class and college educated whites at a war, in a war with middle class and working class whites over power in the United States. And the new right channels that as almost a class movement. Right. Like I, I started my, my original story on the NatCon thing with several quotes. There, you know, I'm sure you've seen there's this great Reddit group that I mean, it's super snarky and kind of vile, but it's like SJ, SJW or Stormfront, a social justice warrior or like a Nazi website. And like the quote is, you can't quite tell which which side it's coming from. There's a number of quotes from from the from the NatCom speeches that you couldn't quite tell if it actually would come from like a Berkeley co-op or the NatCom speech. Right. It'd be hard to tell some of the statements that were dropped. And why is that? Like, how is it that a right wing movement has so departed from the fusionist argument um, and actually said, like, you know what? I, we don't like globalist corporations. Actually, a working person should have dignity and should be able to afford a home and raise a family. It's like these are some right wing talking points among the new right. Um, and again, it makes sense in a way. Right. I, I think the the intellectual spirits being, I think, channeled in the new right. And I know we're getting a little wonky and nerdy. We might be losing some listeners. But people like Burnham or, or Samuel Francis, those who railed, you know, who Christopher Lash wrote about in The Revolt of the Elites, right? This new generation of an elite class that would essentially pull away from the thoughts and values and consumption patterns of like, quote unquote, middle America. That's what the, in my opinion, that's what the new right is a revolt against, against that. And I think to me, if, you know, not that anyone asked for my opinion on how to win, you know, political uh, you know, elections, but if the new right wanted to win elections, it would channel more of that and less of the sort of showy tradism around, you know, Catholicism or being super pro-life or whatever. Well, it was really funny. Uh, I have the perfect follow-up story from the podcast that speaks to what you're describing. So I had Yoram Azoni on the podcast for his new book. Yoram is very smart. I really appreciate speaking with him. He's just very good faith and just like open about his views. But I just straight interviewed him about his views. And he said things like the U.S. should bring prayer in schools back. I am a, you know, very like Orthodox Jew, yet I think America would be better off if there were a Christian revival. And as a Jew, I'm totally in favor of that. So he just says these things like very straightforwardly. I have never had as much audience backlash um, from any segment and, and not even in the obvious ways. So not even the, hey, like I'm super, I'm a, you know, blue state Ivy League grad school listener. And it was offensive that you didn't push back enough. The biggest pushback I got was from people who saw them as kind of like, oh, like I'm realignment right, or oh, I'm a leftist, but I'm interested in horseshoe theory. And, you know, these people tend to come in through my co-host Sager's show, Breaking Points, where kind of the idea is, hey, like, let's see where the populist left and the populist right could really work together. And it was just so funny to hear people on the populist left discover that actually Yoramazoni doesn't think the biggest issue facing America is lack of universal health care. And that actually thinks a big issue is a lack of school prayer. So it's just like very interesting that 
my big critique of so much of like the quote unquote realignment media space has just been a very let's say brand building driven desire to paper over like very discernible realities that people actually hold. Uh, and this like very, very, very annoying habit folks have of basically if, if LARPing is a, if LARPing is an issue um, from people and let's say the populist left and populist right, a outsider issue. So like people like me is wish casting that folks act a certain way. Um, you know, I, you know, you, you kind of had this with uh, Josh Hawley before he, you know, January 6th himself in the sense of you had, you know, Josh, Josh Hawley was interesting for reporters because they're like, oh, my gosh, like he's this like person on the right. But he's saying interesting things about like big tech in a way that I wouldn't see it. And he, whoa, he wrote a book about Theodore Roosevelt and he's Ivy League educated. It's so kind of different. And then at the end of the day, none of that went anywhere because at the end of the day, there's this underlying culture war around Trump where it doesn't matter that he and, let's say, Mitch McConnell have a totally, completely different understanding of corporate power. What, what matters is that at the end of the day, like they were both going to back Trump in a very like, discernible way. So I, I think pushing back on wish casting is, is a real area of focus for me moving the, two, the next two years because it really just sort of rots people's brains. Yeah, well, I mean – yeah, the problem with Holly, or in the, I guess in the case of Hazonian, because of your interview, is that he triggered the sort of Schmidtian friend-enemy distinction on the left. And the left is absolutely um, zealous about drawing circles around what can or can't be discussed, or who is or, you know, not within some considered a sane sphere of, of conversation. And if you trigger certain certain talking points, you're, you're definitely outside of them. I mean, to get back to the Hazoni thing... Um, I mean, he, he made that clear in his speech at NatCon in Orlando last October, and he said exactly what you just said there as well, which is, well, he's an Orthodox Jew, who, by the way, made Aliyah and, and lives in Israel, but yet he feel more comfortable in a more Christian America, thinking that the Jewish mindset would be safer within a Christian America. Although, frankly, Christian society's track records when it comes to protecting your Jews is uh, <laughs> mixed at best. Um, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> seculars do have something going for them <laughs> right right i mean it's it's a little odd that he would kind of bet on, and then it also I, it's funny i'm in the middle you know this this thing paragraph p-a-i-r where there's like this kind of engineered debates online between you and somebody else yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of this debate with with rod dreher who i kind of like and again i, I like a lot of these new right guys as you rightly highlight they're very learned well-read people like this is not the fucking knuckle dragging you know, like the pillow guy and Trump, like these people aren't morons, right? But you just, they just seem dumb and they're just like, eh, who cares? Like they're, they're actually very well-read, interesting people that just come at reality with a very different framework and they're worth reading. I think Rod's a very good writer actually. Um, but, you know, this whole post-liberal thing, which is, the, which, which is what many of them call themselves. And what they mean by that is they're, they're kind of beyond liberal. They're like secular, they think liberalism little L liberalism, right? To, just to be clear, not like the American left wing inevitably leads to where we are today, which they find morally decadent. And so they, they basically reject the entire package thinking that you will necessarily slippery slip yourself into, you know, CRT and drag queen story hour or whatever is outraging them today. Right. Um, and it's, I, I have, I have trouble with that because again, even in the U S like, let's talk logistics. Okay. We're going to institute the Sabbath. So what day is it? Is it Saturday? Is it Sunday? Are we going to go with the Muslims on Friday? Like, what, <laughs> when do the shops close? Because it's going to really suck for Jews if they get out of Shabbat on Saturday and the next day all the shops are closed, right? And, you know, and by the way, like, who, like what, what is considered, which translation of the Bible are we going off? Because Catholics and Protestants still don't agree, <laughs> right, on, on which, which is the holy book. And so in the U.S., it, it rapidly becomes, like, it, it's, it's not surprising that some of the biggest promulgators of this whole post-liberalism things are from flavors of Christianity like Catholicism or Orthodoxy in which they're like the only God game in town in their local market, right? They're used to having like a monopoly on, on religiosity. Like in, in Spain, another country that I consider mine, I'm a Spanish citizen, if you like somehow magically cranked up the, relig the religiosity and spirituality knob in society, we all know where we are. We're inside a Catholic church. That's just what it is. That is what God means in that country. And that's true for Eastern European countries as well. Well, you crank up the knob in the US, where are we? Are we, are we inside a Quaker meeting house? Are we inside a, a Mormon church uh, in Provo, Utah? What, what, what does that mean? Who's running the show here, right? There, there, there'd be no way to even engineer it in any realistic way. That's why I think it's kind of LARPy, right? And that this is, this is not a real platform. Leaving aside the fact that, again, as you said, you, you're not going to convince large swaths of America to come into a theocracy. I, I just don't see that as a viable political strategy. 
sorry, I keep hitting the mute button wrong. What we're nearing the end, so I want to I want to just take us really back to the to the original theme of like how to how to fix this like amorphous ennui filled U.S. world order that we're basically speaking about. I would I, basically say that, and this is what I think Balaji underestimates. He underestimates how responsive ambitious politicians are to these underlying dynamics. So for example, like I know that you have interviewed, you know, Miami mayor, you know, Suarez. Um, he built an entire brand off of the how can I help? How can I integrate with tech? How can I make myself crypto crypto slash Bitcoin friendly? Because there was an actual constituency for that. There was power in that, there was recognition for that. He's never going to be president because he's pro-choice. Frankly, I think he'd be better off actually being a Democrat. I mean, he, enjoyed, he supported Andrew Gillum in 2018. So there's there's some structural reasons why he's not going to go anywhere nationally. But the only reason why he's even getting that meeting with Nikki Haley for a prospective VP slot in 2024 or why his political plans are getting announced in Axios is because he saw, oh, wait a second, there's a deep dissatisfaction with the status quo. Bitcoin and crypto speak to that in a certain way. I will embrace that within the construct we have and integrate them into my political framework. So I'm going to go to Miami Tech Week and wear a polo and not a suit in a way that he would have worn even three or four years ago before COVID. Same thing with, you know, the uh, mayor, Eric Adams, mayor of New York, saying, you know, New York is going to be the crypto city. Um, I said this to Balaji, but like the key thing that's happening is the reason why I think the U.S. is going to, quote unquote, fix itself, why it's going to revitalize itself, why you're just not going to see a total collapse is there are just incentives within that if Balaji is, quote unquote, right, he'll end up being wrong because the true parts of what he's describing are going to be picked up and adopted. And that's what's simply going to happen. And another example of how Balaji is right, you know, I, I remember talking about this years ago when he's talking about, hey, like, why are... Why would you as a tech founder speak to TechCrunch or the New York Times? They're just going to take content from you. They're just going to like misquote you or it's not really going to be worth it. Founders who think that still matters, founders who think that getting that interview with Kara Swisher is going to make or break their company are operating in the 2000s, 1990s, and let's say mid-2010s. Well, Ron DeSantis is no longer doing interviews with the major press. Like That's another example of how Balaji, who once again, I think is a very, very, very smart analytical guy, so we could see trends and take them to their logical conclusions in some cases. I think he is underestimating how non-technical East Coast types, a world where I've spent in, how they could pick up those things too and run with them. So I, I'd say that's, I think that's my, that's basically my path through. Things get shitty, but folks are more flexible than you'd think they are. And that's how actually revitalization looks like. It's not clean, it's not simple. And that's where it ends, I think. Interesting. So wait, so Mayor Suarez is going to be Nikki Haley's VP. Dude, where do you get this gossip? You have like the juiciest gossip. I didn't even know no, Nikki Haley was running. And then apparently now it's it's a Haley Suarez ticket in 2024. Is this true? So no. So there, he's not running with her, but she um, she went to Miami to meet with him. Ah. And then he leaked it, um, which is peak <laughs> Mayor Suarez. Um, he leaked it and it was written up. Um, obviously, like they, they wouldn't do it. Um, and it wouldn't work because once again, like he's he's pro-choice, and I think that the abortion issue is just like the deciding. I, I've I've spoken with like Andrew Yang a lot of times, and I've, my my perpetual beef with Andrew Yang is just that I get what he's saying about how there needs to more be more choice in American society and how things are really nuanced. At the end of the day, the political analysis is that like we're we're in a very binary moment around issues that stem from the Supreme Court, effectively. And Mayor Suarez is the definition of a figure who I think is interesting. I think he's a political entrepreneur. I think he's smart. He's also like super jacked. It's kind of like, it's, 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 he's got, he actually like, he, he has, he's just like a proto person. And if, if, if I'm thinking about like history and stuff like that, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's tragic, not to sound pretentious, but it's kind of tragic to see people who kind of get it, but ultimately aren't going to be remembered except for the footnotes, because there's just one thing holding them back. Like, I'm sure there was, like, this really smart guy in 1893 who just couldn't quite get it, yet we're still talking about William Jennings Bryan, you know, three years later to this day. And I think Mary Suarez falls into that category. Huh, interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know, dude. I, you know, it's beyond my pay grade to like sit here and handicap people's national political prospects. I mean, Suarez is weird because I was raised in Miami. We actually overlapped in middle middle school, <laughs> which is strange. So before I saw him again, um, actually at a David Sachs fundraising thing, like the last time I had seen him was like in seventh grade. <laughs> it was so bizarre to see him. And you, you're right. He's like super jacked and he's like tanned and good looking and suave. He's just like, he's almost this seductive, you know, man of mystery type figure. And somehow he's, he's mayor of Miami and he's just memed that city into existence literally with a single thread, which is incredible. Um, I mean, you are right. The, the American political, the U.S. still possess, possesses a level of just social and political dynamism that's incredible, right? Like, even if you might look at our current president or the feds and say, oh, well, it's kind of sclerotic and pointless and whatever. It's like, I don't know, things are still kind of chugging along, right? Like a lot of the, a lot of low level American government at the state or the city level is actually pretty high functioning. I mean, I, I know it's going to sound weird, but my house outside of Reno, Reno is actually a pretty well run city. But I, I know it sounds odd. You go to downtown, it's a bit of a pit. But outside of it, it's, it's actually very nice. And there was a huge real estate boom there a year or two ago when I, I bought my house. Unfortunately, it, it's eased off a little bit. So my, <laughs> my house is probably underwater. But, um, you know, th- there's a lot of actual state capacity, but it's usually at the at a more local level. And so at that level, I'm not that worried about about the United States of America. Right. Like, yeah, SF is kind of has severe challenges, but that's kind of limited to the weirdnesses and frankly, stupidities of of, you know, SF city government, like you don't necessarily see that more broadly, like, you know, Orinda is still a very nice suburb that I'd be willing to live in, which is this cute little town up in the hills on the east of east of Berkeley. Um, so yeah, like I, again, I, I don't think there's going to be massive turmoil, there's gonna be no civil war. I, I Things aren't that things aren't that bad. I, I think what we're just missing. We're missing a narrative, we're missing a national story. I don't know that it necessarily has to be as Machiavellian as an external enemy. But we're missing there's no narrative, there's no script. We can't even agree on the common good between left and right, right? That's kind of the problem. And, and getting on Twitter and having to constantly redebate your moral foundations is like depressing and tiresome and fatiguing and nobody wants to do it. Um, so, um, yeah. And, and again, I, you know, even if Balaji's network state doesn't happen in like reality, there's a number of sort of charter city or charter nation projects. I interviewed one of them, Praxis, Dryden Brown of Praxis. We had him on here a couple of weeks after Balaji actually split up a month ago. Um, it's funny, I was hanging out with a guy who's running a banking startup in Prospera, which is this kind of charter zone in, um, in Honduras on, um, on an island that actually has like real estate and housing. It's like a functioning polity of, of sorts. It's like a real thing. It's not just a design. Um, you know, a lot of these things I think will exist. And um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to imagine a world war anymore. Um, between, say, China and the U.S. Never mind that they're locking down their cities because they're still grappling with COVID because their vaccines don't work and they refuse to import Western ones. Leaving that aside, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. Let me just uh, close on something because I sure. do think it's important to articulate where I do think biology is right. Look, I think the, the, the crypt, the, everything he's talking about, I think, is entirely valid. I just think that it, it's it's more – I think of this more – I was speaking with a founder about this. I think it's more about a second identity layer in a post-bowling alone society than just a new nation state. So in the same way that – you know, and once again, like insert statement, like how true was this? Are we just kind of repeating um, conventional wisdom about the 1950s here? But you used to have your Elks Club membership and you used to be a Boy Scout and you used to – seriously be involved in your fraternity i think the opportunity for these like crypto related things is just like identity layer um the u.s actually works really great um especially in a deglobalizing world where a crypto nation is not going to have an answer to the issue of what happens if the chinese close the south the, the taiwan strait and global trade collapses the u.s military has an answer to that question um the japanese military has an answer to that question australians et cetera et cetera et cetera Crypto states are not actually doing a job that needs to be done at a nation state level. There is a job to be done at an identity level. Um, if you are a, if you are, to your point, someone who spends the entirety of his life in a mix of California, Miami, Austin, and New York City, your actual like polity, like your actual like space, has different issues. Maybe there are different opportunities or different challenges. And then creating a new identity layer to organize around that. I think that could be crypto-based. That used to be a political party, but that's obviously not the way that you're manifesting that. Uh, I think that's the way someone like me would have manifested it in the past, but not how I manifest it now. So I think what folks should be focusing on is less like, hey, like, let me, and I think Biology's operationally getting there, 
just he's talking about the end point um, in a way that I think is unhelpful relative to the opportunity. Um, the opportunity isn't, hey, this is your new nation. It's, hey, this is your new Elks Club. This is your new Democratic Party. This is your new community-based venture capital fund, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I think folks should be actually talking about. And actually, I think that's where most of these projects are going to end up actually being in the first place. Um, because there's just no need for the UN. Like, A, the UN doesn't really matter any at all anyways. Okay, that's a super overstatement. But th there's there's no path for UN recognition of this sort of on this sort of issue, nor would there be the incentives to actually create it. Um, the UN doesn't recognize like multinational corporations that are obviously have more power than I think even our most imagined crypto nations. Therefore, identity layer is more valid than actual like citizenship. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm obviously talking my book a little bit because I've raised money for a Web3 startup and I've gotten a little crypto build. Um, so I'm, I'm, but I, I do think, and I, I'm, I'm not as, I don't go quite as hard as Balaji as thinking like all of crypto is the future. But I, I do think that part of, part of what crypto is trying to do is create the internet for, again, a, a further virtualization of human life and creating things like, oh, I want to actually own, um, you know, an, an actual an actual um, digital asset. Like, how, how do I do that? Right. Like, I, like I would have title to a piece of real estate. Um, and again, you know, there's a bunch of problems in there, a bunch of Ponzi, like it, uh, there's all the criticisms in the world of Web3. And I think many of it is deserved. But I think it really is trying to reframe the foundations of the Internet to be more like the quote unquote real world. Right. Which you are an individual and you have certain freedoms and you have a right of association and you can create communities and properties and, and, and creations inside that world that are analogous to the real world ones that are defensible and not necessarily owned by the Facebooks and Googles of the world, right? And so I, I think there's something is, there, there definitely is something to that crypto vision, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's funny though, because if you look at crypto, like there's this whole notion of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And it's, it's usually, if you look at a crypto project, it's often the most dysfunctional part of the entire project <laughs> because governance is hard. And often the mechanisms, the incentives aren't set up quite right. And so I, I'm not quite convinced there's like a crypto democracy waiting in the wings. But I, I think it is it is interesting. Um, and I, and there have been some real communities created uh, through crypto that I, that I think are, are lasting and non-trivial. Um, you know, but like everyone else says about crypto, it, it's early days, although it's really not that early. But it, relatively speaking, it is early. No, for sure. And I think that I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about DAOs because I did a lot of um, I also like podcast a lot about tech and I did a lot of web three stuff in 2021 and the real place where I had to really hold my tongue were just when people were talking about DAOs. Um, yeah, just really like, <laughs> like, uh, like, and like, like, like I, it, it's kind of funny because NFTs just got more attention because of, you know, board Ape got club and it was just more dunkable. But I actually think like the, 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 the place where things got silliest and the most like, no guys, like if we just take out a whiteboard and diagram this, this obviously isn't a thing. I think was just sort of, and once again, this isn't dunky on the idea of DAOs, but just like the, the, the rhetoric was just most, this wasn't where most of the money was, but the rhetoric was peak overheated, um, you know, November, 2021 with DAO. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's like, I've never heard venture capitalists sound more like communists than when they were discussing DAOs. And it's like, wait, what? like if, if I, if, if I propose that we run the county this way, you'd never accept it. And yet you somehow think the DAO is going to run this way, but yeah, no, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And it, and again, it's odd that somehow, again, a lot of these pro projects have significant financial success and yet often like the most dysfunctional part of them is actually the DAO. Um, anyhow, so Marshall, we've really been going at it, man. This it's funny. I thought we would we'd be cutting it short, but in fact, we went we went overtime. Um, but we've had a good conversation. I, I think I don't know what the answer yet is to a lot of these questions, but I, I am excited to see where where it goes. For sure. Have a uh, great weekend, man. We really appreciate talking with you. Are Are you gonna? Speaking of which, are you speaking of NatCon and the, and the new writers? Are you gonna Are you gonna be there for for NatCon, or is that not your Is that not your? That's thing? not That's not my It's not my It's not my scene. It's I, not your uh, scene. Yeah, I'm in this weird. I'm in this annoying place where, like, when I'm in Brooklyn, I'm center right. When I'm in When I'm in Texas, I'm center <laughs> left. Um, it, wait, it, it, I, I'm the I'm the triumph of. It's very difficult to brand build when you're just like an interviewer. So I'm basically I've I've done a resolution to myself that by let's say 2023, I'm going to make a firm stand. Um, but I think right now, 
everyone is well served by taking a step back and just thinking about things. Wait, hold on. You're you're going to take a firm political stand by a public political stand by 2023. Is, is that what you're saying, Marshall? Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, once again, like that makes it sound like the whole world is awaiting Marshall Kozlov to announce his take. No more. Just this is why I don't tweet. Um, like I do not tweet at all. Um, and it's just because because I'm in this weird. I I had this uh, last story I'll tell is I did this interview with uh, Ian Bremmer. He's at the Eurasia group, Eurasia group, and uh, we did this interview, and I kind of thought Ian was, like, full of shit. I wasn't really enjoying the interview. The interview ends, and he goes, hey, like, you thought I was full of shit. Why didn't you just say it on the podcast? And I was like, oh. He's like, yeah, yeah you should just say that. would be a much better conversation. Uh, so I've just resolved to actually just be much more aggressive about it because at a certain point, you've, like, sort of observed enough, but I think I've just been well-served by it. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> expect tweets. Twenty-three, Marshall. I think I think the fundamental problem is that you're not an asshole. I think you need to become an asshole to actually make it in media. You're much too nice a person. I, I think that's <laughs> that's that's your disability here. So here to heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm deeply serious. Like you meet some of the most successful people online, you meet them and they're kind of assholes. But in any case, uh, it. The why is it that society has incentivized sociopathic behavior is probably a topic for another another pull request or another realignment episode. For sure. Thanks. Okay. Man. Cool. Well, thanks everyone. Um, you know, I don't. I usually plug the next episode on this episode, but I don't remember who it is next week, so I can't do that, and I don't have my calendar with me. But rest assured, there will be somebody else <laughs> coming from the uh, you know the, the trenches of, of public discourse next week on the pull request. Uh, Marshall Kozlov with the Realignment Podcast, and are you still with the Lincoln Network, Marshall? Officially or, or no? Yes, Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln. Lincoln sponsors the Realignment via Hewlett, so lots of great stuff there. Cool. And then, will you also be at the Reboot Conference in October in Miami? Or... I will. I will be at. I will be at the Reboot Conference. Okay. Very well, look, and, and, and I'll be in SF next week um, for oh. the uh, show posting event. So lots of good. Oh, stuff. oh, God! So much to plug. Oh my God! I'm such a bad shill. So next week, <laughs> let's go ahead and do it. It's life, liberty, and and the and life, liberty, and the pursuit of ship posting. Which I, I take credit for that title. I actually told Zach that title. It is at the Commonwealth Club. I assume tickets are available online. It's going to be me, Mike Solano of Pirate Wires, um, probably higher. A lot Gill. A lot Gill. Uh, no, no, not a. Uh, it's not a lot. Edelman, 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 Edelman. Oh my Gale god! The venture capital. Oh my god, dude! That's you, so funny. <laughs> you, you all look, you all look same Jews. It's amazing. It's not. It's, 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 it's the different. It's the other guy. Um, and Renee DeResta of um, what is she part of? Oh, the Stanford Stanford. Internet. Right. And she and I have been yelling at each other for years now. Um, and uh, St- uh, Alex Stamos, former head of security at, uh, at Facebook, also currently at Stanford. And so we're going to get up and yell at each other about free speech. We're going to freely yell at each other as an example of free speech. Um, and then in October, we have the Rubu Conference, which I think David Sachs is keynoting. I'll be, at, I'll be there. You'll be there, Marshall. Um, Mike Solana. Good Mike Solana. Yeah, good, very good crew. Lots, lots of exciting stuff in the in the calendar upcoming. Okay, so thanks everyone, and with that, uh, we're off. Thanks, Marshall. See y'all. Thanks. Have a good weekend.